continue to meet your lunch, but I'd like now to go ahead and begin this session of the Mershon Workshop on the History of Armed Forces. It's a pleasure today to introduce Professor John Brown of the University of Illinois. He's a terrific historian of international stature and also a great friend of the Ohio State University and the Mershon Center and a great friend of the Torchlands and all the scouts. It's nice to have Professor Lynn here today. He's the author of a great many books. Most recently, Battle, History of Combat and Culture, which is on the short list, just about everybody's short list these days, of the kinds of works that anybody who is interested in military history broadly can see. Anybody interested in knowing what's going on in the field really needs to read and to engage with. So it's an important contribution to the question of whether and in what kind of way there is something called the Western way of war. He is, in addition, the president of the International Commission on Military History. He is also the vice president of the Society for Military History. U.S. Commission. U.S. Commission. Yeah. Today, America, tomorrow, the world. <laughs> the U.S. Commission. I will amend my commission on military history with uh, future developments will come. And I'm sure of this part, Vice President of the uh, Society for Military History. Professor Lenz's talk today is entitled War, Insurgency, and Terrorism A Conversation on Commonalities and contrasts in the political uses of violence. Mark is indeed a great friend. Uh, he did fail, however, to say something that I consider to be extremely important, and that is after an absence of, I think, only six months, I'm back on faculty here as, a, as adjunct professor, which means a lot to me. I find Ohio State a more congenial environment than the one I spend most of my time with at the University of Illinois. And my yearly trips here to deal with faculty and graduate students are, shall we say, a necessary ego boost to go back and deal with uh, the sort of thing that I have to do on a daily basis. Um, this is going to be a funny talk, okay? I'm not a pundit. Um, that's never, I never come at, at things that way. Um, uh, more a question than an answer kind of guy. And because of my book on war and culture and a couple of other projects that are really about 10 years old, although one of them is just being published now because insurgency is back in, in style, so to speak, um, I've been thinking a lot about this relationship between war, insurgency, and terrorism. I need to do it again for another reason. Um, Battle came out in 93 as a first edition. Then we came out with a second edition in paperback in the fall of last year with a much expanded discussion of terrorism. And now it's going to come out in French, and they want a whole update on that whole thing. Uh, and I have decided that I, it's 
going to uh, engage in a ma major rewrite. So I'm on the third version of, this, of my chapter on terrorism. So I need to deal with this. The other thing is, I've been, for the last two years, I've been teaching a course in the history of terrorism. Um, and for me, it's a teaching slash learning experience. Uh, the students tend to be intense. They actually do come to class for that class. Um, and I learn things from their papers and from their essays. Uh, and so part of the evolution of my thought uh, is indeed learning from my undergraduate students. Uh, we always talk about graduate students. Uh, undergraduates have a lot to teach us, too, uh, if you know how to ask the questions and you know how to keep your ears open. So that's where we are. I'm talking about an evolution of my own thought. I've called it a conversation. Um, it might even be called a confession. It's going to be very personal, but I think along the way uh, we touch on things that are really critical to trying to deal with this relationship. And this relationship between war, insurgency, and terrorism is awfully important. It isn't just a matter of words. Um, depending on how we see that relationship, uh, we will do different things in different ways. Another thing that started me on this was listening to Bush talk the night of 9-11. If you will remember his words, the word evil kept on popping up in nearly every sentence. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. Today our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature. The search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. November 2nd, he, were, he said, Osama oh, bin Laden is an evil man. His heart has been so corrupted that he's willing to take innocent life, and we are fighting evil, and we will continue to fight evil, and we will not stop until we defeat evil. Now, yes, you know, terrible things happened on 9-11. War is in itself a kind of evil, and it's been labeled as such by religious leaders, political leaders. Nuremberg tri Tribunal gave it that official label as well. The trouble with calling it an evil, particularly when you are a born-again evangelical Christian and your speechwriter who put that word in is an evangelical Christian, is that it really has an association with kind of the ultimate evil. You know, just put a D in front of the word evil and there you are. And evil is something you eradicate. You don't negotiate with it. You don't compromise it. You don't find a solution. You eliminate it. It also implies a moral standing of we are not evil and you are evil. Otherwise, you don't start calling people evil. Those were all things I find were going to get in the way of dealing with terrorism as a political problem. So right from the start, I began my crusade against the word evil. And I pulled, a, uh, you know, I'm going to get rid of this coat. It's really hot. I, 
I got a lot of flack from people on that, including my own family. I, you know, because I was trying to write on terrorism in a way that would, would approach everybody, I, I didn't just give it to undergraduates and, and fellow colleagues. I gave it to my sister-in-law and my nephew kind of thing, who were very smart people, and they were appalled that anybody could say that wasn't evil. And it took quite a bit to get to the point where the language was such that I wouldn't lose everybody the first time they hit the word, no, it's not evil. So right from the start, I wanted to turn it into a political thing. So right from the start, I said, no, we really, let, let's get rid of the word evil and substitute war. This is an act of war. Okay? It may be a kind of war that is horrifying, that is particularly bad or, 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 or attacks a particularly vulnerable kind of, of uh, victim, but it's still an act of war. I also believe that the way we think about war is really critical. The words we choose. I mean, if, if somebody came and gave me a million bucks and said, do anything you want to do, you can can the contracts you've already got. Pay them back their advances. Do what you want to do. I'd love to do a book on words and war. Because I think that a lot of our reactions to the way other people use the language of violence is crossing cultural lines, and we don't really hear what they mean, we're hearing what they say translate into what we do. And that there's a lot of difference in the way people talk about violence and war. At any rate, this is, this is the, the theoretical, not terribly theoretical, pretty simple, the schematic off of my discussion about the relationship between the discourse on war and the reality of war from my book, Battle. And the critical relationship is the one in orange there. I won't bother you with the yellow blocks. But basically, the way we conceive of war and, and talk about war, the values and preconceptions we bring to it, in other words, the discourse, does have a tremendous effect on the way war is actually fought. And of course, the way actually war is actually fought as we perceive it has an effect on the discourse. It's, it's a constant feedback loop. I also argue that the, the discourse will never match the reality, and the reality will never match the discourse. It, there's, uh, there, there are built-in reasons why it's going to be continually in a, in a kind of feedback loop. So thinking about it and using the right words are really critical to my way of thinking. And I've got support. That's my hero. Uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe he does some disgusting things that I don't know about, but I, I think uh, Tony Zinni's an extraordinary individual. And Zinni, in a very practical way, has been calling for a reconceptualization of war for a long time. Um, one of my favorite quotes is, the truth is that the military, military conflict has changed and we have been reluctant to recognize it. Defeating nation-state forces in conventional battle is not the task for the 21st century. Odd missions to defeat transnational threats or rebuild nations are the order of the day, but we haven't yet adapted. And to the, to the extent that I understand what transformation reads, means to the Army right now, I don't think the Army's adapting either. It all comes down to better ways of dealing with the conventional battlefield. There's a really interesting quote by him. By Zinni, in which he says, we continue keeping to keep improving the things we already do pretty well, as opposed to, to learning new things. Okay, so let's start with some definitions. I'm going to tell you, first of all, I studied with a brilliant guy, bastard, but a brilliant guy when I was a graduate student, uh, Peter Perret. 
And we, we, we started out by having to define what militarism meant in the seminar. And I gave my, you know, dictionary definition. Boy, I worked like hell on that thing. And he says, he starts to seminar and says, I want to read Lynn's definition. I thought, oh, God, I finally scored with this bastard. And he says, I want to read it because it's just the wrong approach. <laughs> and I defined all these conditions. And he argued that the best definition for militarism, which turned out to be an overemphasis of military practice and symbols, et cetera, within the context of, of particular circumstances, that the best definition was not the most exact. It was one that caught the essence of what's going on, but was were intentionally kind of sloppy because that forces you not to match the real world to a tight little thing but to think very hard about what that real world situation means. So to me war is simply violence to fulfill a goal beyond the exclusively private interest of an individual or the individuals. It's commonly between states and groups it's commonly political and rational on large scale, but it can be driven by cultural forces, by social forces, and it can be conducted on a much smaller scale. Now, the critical thing for me is about motives and policy. And because I'm willing to take it down to a fairly small level, and it doesn't have to be between states, or large forces, then obviously I have a pretty inclusive definition. For me, insurgency is clearly a part of war. Nobody's going to argue with that, right? And to me, that is war fought not between states, but within a state to eliminate or replace a regime or uh, to gain regional independence within state. It's, it's an intra-state affair. That automatically uh, would, would imply that in most cases it's going to be an existing regime versus the opponents of that regime. Defining terrorism is, is more difficult. Um, I was in Spain while the thing was going on in March, and I had our hotel was right close to where they were going to have the, the last sessions of it. I got out of, uh, after having dinner with one conference, I get out and there's guys coming in from that conference and I yelled at them, you should have invited me. <laughs> and they gave me a double take and then we talked about deficits of terrorism because they were having a hell of a time coming up with it. I don't think anybody's got a single definition of terrorism that works, go out of the web. You know, you, for legal reasons, one has to have specific definitions, okay. But it's a, a case, again, where I don't think it works exactly. And even if you look at, you know, supposedly the fundamental works like Bruce Hoffman, you know, after the whole chapter, he ends up saying, but it's really hard to define or you really can't define it. So I take a different tack. My definition is a set of characteristics that fit. For me, terrorism exhibits four traits. Obviously, it uses violence or the threat of violence, okay? Nobody has to debate that, okay. Against those unable or unprepared to defend themselves adequately. Why? If they were able and prepared to defend themselves, it's, it's, it's a more normal form of war. It involves the moral dimensions of self-defense. It is not the attack on the innocence that so get us in the guts in dealing with terrorism primarily to create fear. 
In war, the physical damage, in large-scale war, conventional war, the physical damage both has an effect on, on, on the will, of course. War is always psychological. But the physical effect is also valuable in and of itself. In terrorism, it's about creating a state of mind. With the intention of affecting community action or public policy. I think you have to have community action in there as well as public policy. And again, those are my four characteristics. For me, in the classroom and when I'm writing, they work real well. You can disagree. I do one fifth one, which really isn't sort of the defining thing, but I think it's something you have to consider in terrorism, and that is the, the essential role of publicity or public knowledge. I, my, my, my little line with my students is, terrorism is violence multiplied by publicity. Now, in many cases, it doesn't have to be the media. It has to be the sense that the people who need to know that they should be afraid, know they should be afraid. The news is carried in one way or another. So, for example, if you look at the Ku Klux Klan or other white supremacist groups who oppressed blacks in the American South, you don't need to have it in the newspaper. Just make sure that that local community knows they better lay low or something's going to happen to them. But you have to have the public knowledge. Okay. Now, I, I'm not going to sit here and, 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 you know, fight to the death about those definitions. It's just that I got to have some, you know, kind of places to begin from. Okay. Now, let, let me turn, and, and I said, this is kind of a personal talk, so I'm going to jump around a little. Let me turn to one thing that really bugs me. That's when somebody says, as if this was a really frigging profound thing to say, you can't fight terrorism, you can only fight terrorists. Therefore, the war on terrorism is, you know, oh, come on. I mean, first of all, it's obvious that that's not what the war on terrorism means. It means fighting terrorists. But there's another thing, and that is we are engaged in a war on terrorism. Why? Terrorism is the poor man's way of making that political influence, of, of having the clout. What did Pablo Escobar said? Terrorism is the poor man's atomic bomb. One of my great heroes, Pablo Escobar. But at any rate, it's the lowest form of war. For the guerrilla war, I'll argue, I'm going to go on with Mao. You need the, 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 the sea for the fish. In a terrorist situation, you need two crazy guys, and they can grow up a, an office building in, in, and they weren't even crazy, which is even scarier, uh, in, in Oklahoma City. It's, it's a low entry point form of war. Okay? Consequently, it's on the table. And if it, if, if it was you know, right-wing fundamental supremacists before, now it's going to be Islamic extremists. And tomorrow, God knows what the terrorist threat will be. To that extent, we have to create a situation in which we can deal with terrorist threats per se better than we do now. That is fighting terrorism, not just particular terrorists. Consequently, I think that that, 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 that usual question that's thrown out really misses the point. We need not only to deal with terror, the terrorism that faces us now, but the terrorism that could be there in the future. And in cause, it'll be different. 
but in practical methodology to deal with it, it might be very similar. Okay, talking about is terrorism war? Okay, yes, it is. To me, it is because again, terrorism has goals beyond the criminal interests of an individual. There is one bit of exception. We'll get to that in a minute. But the kind of terrorism we're concerned are by people who have intense beliefs. You know, Timothy McVeigh was a real zealot. An isolated zealot, pretty much, but a zealot. Obviously, Islamic, you know, suicide bombers are real zealots, willing to give up their lives for something other than their, their own immediate private interest. They are com committing a political act. Consequently, to me, that fits my definition of war. Now, there, there is a hole in that, and that is that, to me, one of the fundamental things that drives the morality of a war, and I know there are just war theorists who say, no, 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 it's terribly naive, but in the real world, I think it can be very much put down to the notion of self-defense. On a, just a personal basis, it's, I've got to get him or he's going to get me. But if you look at the, re, at, at, at the way we talk about this war, you know, we don't even talk about aggression anymore. Everybody's defending themselves. Okay? We don't have armies anymore with defense forces, okay? You know, I mean, and the people attacked in terrorism are specifically not capable of defending themselves. They're, by their nature, soft targets. You're getting them where they're not ready, where they're not prepared. But it's still war. Think about a surprise attack. I mean, the ultimate attack is get them while they're still in their tents and slit their throats before they can get to their guns. That's a good act of war. We get praise for that. Those people, you're trying to get them precisely when they can't defend themselves. You could argue that they're really bad at being soldiers if they get caught in that situation, but I don't think that, that the, the lack of self-defense removes this from a military context. And again, I want to get to my point that I think that we have to see terrorism as kind of the lowest stage of war, an entry point. Now, in an entry point, one expects to get someplace, and in a military situation, I think one expects a kind of escalation to, to a larger scale of war. And I think that fits in if we look at Mao's, uh, Mao's ideas on guerrilla war, mobile war, positional war, and fit terrorism into that. Now, I'm sure most of you know what I'm talking about, but let me just walk through it real, very briefly. Mao talked about once you enter the armed struggle, once you enter the armed struggle, you have three stages of carrying out that armed struggle. Now, it's very important in Mao's theory to recognize that the armed struggle follows the beginning of the political struggle. And then you have to prepare the ground for the armed struggle. Mao talked about guerrillas being fish in a sea. There had to be a sea of support to nurture and maintain and to aid and to hide the guerrilla. The guerrilla, in a, in a sense, is public to one audience and secret to another. And in fact, it's, their, it's the support 
that's consciously given to recognize guerrilla that make it possible for them to function. They need recruits. They need money. They need intelligence. And a lot of what, what Mao talks about when he talks about how guerrillas should operate, I mean, remember one, one of the lines is, you always put the doors back on the houses. These were peasant houses, which the doors could actually come off. And you never mess with their women. And you only take some of their food. And they're all based on maintaining this notion of the sea. In fact, the Japanese, uh, they tell me, had a campaign against the guerrillas called Drain the Sea at one point. Now, so we have a political stage first. Then we go into the guerrilla stage, in which, again, it's what you think, a fighter by day, a peasant by night. Um, there are some who are constantly at the activity in small bands, and those small bands get larger. And at a certain point, you have what we used to call main force units, maybe battalion size units. Um, you control enough territory, you have enough resources, you can start to put out larger units. And then they coordinate with guerrilla bands, and you get what he called mobile warfare. Now, mobile, mobile warfare to him didn't mean you had trucks and tanks, it meant that the front was always moving. Okay? Because you weren't big enough to really stand against a large scale army, but by coordinating, Larger units with guerrilla units, you could wear down an enemy and take advantage of their vulnerabilities much in a much better way. Meanwhile, of course, you're controlling more territory, winning more people to the cause, and at some point you've got enough of these main force armies that now you can, uh, units, you can actually form an army that can fight a positional war. And by, by position means you take a position or you defend a position, but you can fight in a conventional way. So for Mao, in his theory, the war grows in stages and ends up looking like we'd call conventional war. And you use one stage to procure the ground for the next. Now, if you want to play around with terrorism in that context, the terrorist cells can exist before the sea. And if you actually look at the uh, Latin American insurgency war theory. The critical work here is Regis Dubray, okay? The revolution with the revolution. That theory was that the, the, the governments in Latin America are so crappy to begin with, everybody knows they're corrupt and only for the rich. You don't need the political education. What you have to overcome is the fear that if you take a stand, you'll be eliminated. So the way you, you carry out the, the uh, political education is by having these small groups. The group is, is known as a foco, but is also the focus of the revolution. Okay? And they begin the ter terrorist acts. They don't get, hopefully, they don't get eliminated. And then they draw more people to them as fighters. And the revolution grows without that big political phase first. But the critical thing are these small terrorist groups. Now, my first inclination was to say, okay, how does this work? Well, gee, you know, I mean, I can show you examples where that's how an insurgency begins, okay? Algeria, okay? Um, Tamil Tigers. El Fatah, okay? And so my first inclination to make terrorism a form of war was to shove it in as the pre-guerrilla phase of now a four-phase Maoist idea of warfare. And it works a lot of the time. Fortunately, I started arguing it worked all the time. That was a dumb thing to do. 
Now, let's see. Um, there's an interesting take on this that Michael Addis has. I mean, what, he's, he's at Rutgers, isn't he? And he argues, now Michael Addis is sort of, you know, cheering for the revolution. And so he wanted to redefine terrorism as a global insurgency, because the insurgents are good. Okay, so this is a new kind of global insurgency. Uh, first of all, to me, global insurgency is a contradiction in terms, because I think insurgencies are very much about particular places. But he suffices the global, and then he said something really interesting. And that is that because there's no particular one state involved in, in international or global forms of terrorism, and I realize an awful lot of terrorism is, is based on, on, on disputes within one country in, in one way or another, but he was talking about Al-Qaeda and others. He's, they're trapped in the first stage of terrorism. They can never become guerrillas because they're, they're never in that fish-in-the-sea sort of situation. They may see themselves as growing into greater, but he says they're really kind of trapped into just a perpetual destruction. Very interesting ob observation. Got to me. Okay. Then I need to put it in another context. Now, this is out of my book. Okay. I want to, again, in order to diffuse the evil question, but also to take a much broader look at terrorism, I wanted to come up with a topology of terrorism, uh, of kind of historic terrorism. Okay. This is what I came up with. First of all, we need to divide state terrorism, non-state terrorism, and what I call criminal terrorism. State terrorism, the most for common form of terror, is what I call military strategies of terror. Now, in a book that otherwise I don't like very much, Caleb Carr's book on terrorism, he confronts the actions of regular armies that are consciously attacking civil populations in the name of terrorizing them as a form of terror, and I think he's dead, dead on. Now, I happen to be you know, an early modernist, and we deal with armies consciously terrorizing people all the time, uh, particularly after sieges. But once you take the notion that armies can commit strategies or operations or tactics meant precisely to create fear in a, uh, a civilian population in order to change policy, to move them closer to victory in some way or another. Then you see terrorism everywhere. Uh, it starts at least with the Assyrians, and I'm certain before then, but the Assyrians, we now believe, clearly organized siege warfare to create terror so that the next city would capitulate without, uh, without resisting. That certainly was a tactic in early modern Europe. Uh, it's certainly a byproduct of logistical fail, failure of early modern armies. I could go on and on. The Chevauchets in the Middle Ages. And one of them is also the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. If you look at the Bates over it, the word is used. They want to do something that will have, quote, ma maximum psychological impact. And I don't think that the fact that a war is going on removes a, an event from the context of terrorism. Okay? Now, I'm going to tell you right away, I believe that the bombing of Hiroshima was an act of a strategy of terror, and I also believe it was entirely justified. Written a whole chapter on that. But it is a strategy of terror by my definition. Then there's regime terror for internal control, another old, old form 
you know, you often read in these books that are trying to be, you know, you know, insightful. Ah, terror, you know, terrorism begins with the French Revolution. No, it doesn't. But there's a reign of terror in the French Revolution, and it's and it is terrorizing people within a regime to conform to the standards of that regime. It's as old as the hills. It just gets called a, strat, you know, a, a reign of terror in the French Revolution. Then we have what we call state-sponsored uh, terrorism. And I think you need to break that down into when a state actually engages in what we would call a terrorist act, uh, or when it supports people who engage in terrorist ter You could argue that perhaps Pan Am 103 is state-conducted terrorism, whereas uh, the support of Hezbollah by, by Iran is state-supported terrorism. Then we deal with non-state terrorism. And one of the big ones there is terrorist social control. And I got three letters for you, KKK. I mean, one of the things I, f I think that I have to tell my students in order to get them to think rationally about terrorism is America has a very old and rich, rich uh, history of terrorism. It's directed against African Americans. Goes back a long way. We all know about it. It's terrorism. Then we get to what we normally call terrorism now, which I call revolutionary terrorism by groups. And it can be national, they can be ethnic, and uh, they can be political, they can be ethnic, they can be religious, they can all be all jumbled together in, in odd combinations. That's what we usually think. And in fact, if you look at something like Hoffman, they say terrorism is conducted by non-governmental groups. Well, I don't believe that at all, but it, I mean, it can be, but I don't think it's exclusively there. And I think that there also is revolutionary terrorism by individuals, which is an interesting idea, and I think McVeigh fits in there. And the notion is that this guy is actually engaged in something that he thinks is revolutionary. That he's very, you know, McVeigh didn't belong to a group, but he read all their material and he shared a lot of their sympathies. He was a member of the Ku Klux Klan in a trial membership for a year and didn't, uh, you know, renew. But the guy who went, to, went to, to gun shows and, you know, sold the, the, the Turner Diaries and things like that. The last thing is criminal terrorism. And here we have narco-terrorism. And folks, I know I just broke my rule because I said terrorism is not about personal gain. The, when when narco-terrorism really is a special category because it isn't about criminal gain, but it, but it engages in an attack on central political institutions in order to gain changes in policy, that will benefit itself uh, personally. So that when... when uh, uh, Pablo Escobar is, is doing things that would make Islamic uh, terrorists envious in the extreme. He's doing it for his own personal enrichment, etc., but it's all about extradition, possibilities of extradition of him to the United States. So it, it had a political goal in the short term. Okay. Now, there's a contradiction between this and the Maoist thing, which, is, which now I'm dealing with. I just put them both in that last chapter, and then it was my students, but wait a minute, you know, here you've got all these forms of terrorism that aren't a kind of war uh, in the sense that, that, that don't fit into the Maoists, uh, you know, scaling kind of war. So it can't really, terrorism can't really just fit in there. So I've reached a conclusion which is, I'm sure, obvious to all of you, but it took me a long time to get there. That is that 
Terrorism is a form of war. Insurgency is a form of war. But not all forms of terrorism work into the notion of insurgency. Okay. <laughs> Big brainstorm. The funny thing is that instead of terrorism being a form of, of insurgency, growing into insurgency in that way, it, it looks like the war against terrorism naturally grows into insurgency, at least the way we're conducting it. And we so, get, so we get in this kind of flipping it all around, that maybe it's, we have to look at the, the counterterrorism as being closely related to insurgency. Now, I don't know how, you met, how many of you have read Barnett's, The Pentagon's New Map. Um, Grimsley turned me on to the dark force by telling me I had to go read it, and I did. And what, what caught me there is Barnett saying that terrorism results from people not being integrated into the global economy. So it's, it's like this. If you want to keep them from blowing up the from blowing up the train, you've got to get them on the train, okay? And the, the little dots there are military deployments or crisis situations that we've had to deal with, and he says they form this map. So we have the global economy is like this big circle around it. We're all doing well, and we're not terrorizing people. And then we have this area in here that's not opted on, and that's where the terrorism comes from. So, maybe to fight terrorism, we have to drag these people onto the train by any means necessary. He liked the Iraq war. If people listen to Burnett and actually act on that stuff, and I don't know where they are or not, it's a hot-selling book, and it's supposed to be the, the best brief in Washington, but it implies conventional operations followed by counterinsurgency again and again in the name of fighting terrorism or fighting terrorists, whichever you prefer. Very interesting. There's another relationship, and that has to do with kind of the tactics involved. Now, I swear to God I'm going to stop in three minutes because I promise I don't take 40 minutes. So I'm just going to hint to this thing. Um, this is something I designed in its initial form maybe 15 years ago for the classroom, teaching undergraduates. Okay. Then I took it off to the Marine Corps University when I was there in 94, 95. Ran into a colonel of special forces. And he and I faxed back and forth from the University of Illinois to, to Quantico, and we upped the, 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 the form of this thing. And then I used it in the classroom for about 10 years, because nobody gives a shit about, about insurgency. Okay. And then I was off at, at, at Leavenworth, and obviously everybody's talking about insurgency now. I thought, you know, I've got this stuff on insurgency. You ought to dust it off and see if it's useful. Was able to get a hold of this colonel who's now, you know, a Beltway bandit. His name is Glenn Hart Hardiner. And um, we looked at it again. And he looked at the, my model and said, no, you've got to add this and that, this. I said, no, I don't want to add that, but that's a good idea. And this is what came out. And this is coming out in, in military review soon. I don't know. They won't give me an absolute date on it. Okay. What struck me about this and about, about terrorism, and again, it's another relationship between insurgency and terrorism, is the way in which 
A lot of things you do in an insurgency are the same things you do in a, in a, in a counter-terrorist operation, or at least the principles are. This is what I recall a security-based model of insurgency. That, uh, that, to me, the ultimate question is security. I, my favorite quote uh, is from a, um, a army colonel who was, who was interviewed on CNN, and he said, we can't really win the hearts and minds of the Iraqis, but we can provide security and establish trust. And I thought, that's right. I mean, ultimately, the critical thing is who's going to make the uncommitted person most able to just go on with their lives. You're not going to win over the committed. You may have to kill the committed or get rid of them in some way. The critical thing is the uncommitted neutral population which is going to flow to whatever suits its needs best. And that's what this model is about. I, I don't have the time to go into the whole thing. Basically, you've got a pro-government, a pro-insurgent population, and a majority of uncommitted people in, the, in, in between who are going to support one or the other depending on circumstance. What you need to do is create the, the circumstances in which you, they support the side you want to win. Okay? But critical in that is the flow of intelligence. Why? Because you don't want to victimize the neutral population in attempts to attack the hostile population. So you've got intelligence, I would say focus, restraint, and security are kind of the principles behind which this kind of a model can operate. Now, I sent a copy of the article and the model to uh, Mark Grimsley, and you're all welcome to, to get a copy of it from him. Um, as I said, it'll, it'll be out in, in, in military review. But one of the things, again, that struck me is how similar the things are. Now, I talk endlessly about restraint. That doesn't mean you're nicey-nicey and never hurt anybody. It's just that you be very careful about who you hurt. Because what you're trying to do is not recruit for the other side. And again, those are principles you're going to operate in both. There is one thing I haven't resolved yet, and that is this. I talk endlessly about restraint, about focus, and yet it does look to me like in many cases insurgencies and terrorist movements die out of exhaustion. That they have to go on and be pointless long enough for people to get tired of it, and then compromise becomes a principle. And by the way, that's a very old principle of war. I study early modern war, and it's my, what I call war pro process, in which battles don't matter much, and I can give you plenty of examples of wars in which one side wins the battles and loses the war in early modern Europe. The critical point is that both sides wear down to the point of expended enough resources that they're looking for a way out, and then compromise works. So in a sense, there has to be a cost. There has to be an exhaustion process before there's a solution. It's unfortunate, but I think that's there. And I haven't worked that in yet, folks. But my time's up, so I don't have to work it in, okay? So I am done. Mr. Gilbarton. What do you get by categorically denying the existence of evil? I'm, I'm not talking about criticizing inappropriate application of concepts, but categorically, categorically denying the existence. 
you remove the moral outrage dimension, you open up the possibility for dialogue and compromise, you open up the possibility that they hate us for what we do and not just that they hate us for who we are. And you get American students to think about if that's evil, then aren't these other things evil too? And you get a moral balance. That, that's why I find it valuable. Yeah. Yes, sir. A quick rejoinder. <clears throat> what, what you miss is the possibility that some of these folks may actually hate us for what we are and not for what we are. I'm so, if I'm, you reject evil, you're going to miss those guys altogether, and you're going to be unable to deal with them, which we have been unable to The way you deal with them, you kill them. Okay? I mean, I don't know any problem. I mean, give me, you know, give, give me a, a good line of sight to Osama bin Laden, and I will just blow his head off. I, that's, that's how you deal with a guy like that. There's, you know, there's, but those aren't the people you're going to win over anyway. I mean, this, they hate us for who we are or what we, you know, or, or, or what we do is another one of those, we're not fighting terrorism, we're fighting terrorists. There is no war on terrorism. Um, I think there is a tipping point in which people object to the things you do and then at a certain point that becomes, they figure yet the things you do are because of the way you are and they hate the way you are. And you can see that in, in radical Islamic theory, okay? I agree with you entirely on that. But if you're going to be successful in, in this particular kind of war against these particular kind of terrorists, you're going to have to think beyond the point of Bernard Lewis or Samuel Huntington. And evil, the concept of evil, gets in the way, in my opinion. Well, you, you're not going to exhaust the other side without, without, I think, a relentless pursuit. So you try to get rid of as many of the bad guys as you can. But the other part is there's always other bad guys that seemingly take their place. At a certain point, the costs have to look so horrendous that people are willing to sit down. Sometimes it happens pretty fast. It happened that fast with the most extreme period of the IRA. That happened pretty fast. In other cases, it takes a lot longer time. A musical accompaniment. Yes, sir. I, I have some problems with the notion that the uh, terrorist groups have objectives. Uh, uh, and with the generality or the specificity yeah. of those objectives. Could you clarify that? I, I think that in, in the sense that, that many of the objectives are millenarian, they, they aren't short-term specific political goals, I, and I agree with you, but they are still are their notion of fighting an evil that if one wins and if one has divine help, then there will be a new, you know, a new kind of world will emerge out of it, and perhaps only Allah knows or perhaps only God knows. But no, I agree with you. But I still think it's political. It just doesn't have that, that very specific goal of we want Silesia, okay? Frederick the Gate, 1740. Sorry about that.
Yes, sir. Um, I thought your use of that pyramid scheme for Mao was a, a little bit uh, too straightforward. So I want to ask you a question about the American-style terrorism. You mentioned the KKK. Yeah. You could easily imagine that as an insurgency against the occupying forces of the North during the period of Reconstruction that degenerated into forms of social control. So couldn't you have things go down Mao's pyramid instead of just go up Mao's pyramid? Well, it's an interesting idea. I mean, the, 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 the era of white supremacism that bothers me most is not the period between the creation of the Ku Klux Klan and its official elimination, what, in 1872 or something, um, but the period uh, af after that, when it, often the, the, the groups aren't even called Ku Klux Klan. There's some other white supremacist group. And um, it's hard for me to see those as, as meant to do anything other then, yes, A, control the black community. That means drive them away from the polls or other political influence so that, that people the white supremacists uh, approve of can run things. But it's not, it's not the same thing as sort of trying to take over South Vietnam. Um, but I'm fully willing to say that we can go up and down that thing. In fact, even Mao says you can do that because... Um, Guerrilla movements or can can advance, be defeated, and have to slip back down the chain. So there's there you know there's the, the possibility. It's just that to me the lowest entry level is clearly terrorists. You don't need a mass support. You need very few people. You can operate in a hostile sea. You don't need a supportive sea. Um, and given today's technologies, both the vulnerabilities of our technologies and the destructive potential of technologies, it's such a low entry level to do awful things. But no, I agree, and, and, and that's worth, worth thinking about. In terms of the, of the KKK, what I like to deal with there is, first of all, that's good old American terrorism, okay? Second of all, it's really directed at a, at a, at a social racial group. It's not directed directly at the government. You could argue it's done to preserve a government which, it, which, which is amenable to that group, but it's really directed to keep these people in their place. Yes, sir? Yeah, I'd like to pick up on the point, which I think is really a good one. And Civil War historians and allies, as I understand it, saying that the Civil War went on until 1877. Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, what, what's happened here is that the North and South reached a mutual agreement that secession was no longer an objective. When you take that off the table, then the KKK is, is in, a, in essence, restoring as much of the anti-Bomb status as they can get away from. Okay. And, and they're supporting the, the occupying union forces. The forces. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't have a big problem with that analysis, but I don't think it it, it does anything more than add another dimension to what, I, to what I've been saying up here. And by the way, just just wrote down your comment here for the for for, for revision. Yes. Um, your traits of terrorism seem to be a lot about uh, terrorist groups and their actions towards uh, the, the enemy. The yeah. Terrorism also has it has multiple audiences. It's also speaking to potential rival groups, potential dissent within the terrorist mm -hmm. group. No, a very good point. Um, have, have you incorporated much thought about that? that angle? Yes. Yeah. It's it's in the chapter, but it's not in the diagram. Obviously, in in 
in terrorizing a group, you're demonstrating power and assertion of the group that you think you're representing uh, and may indeed you know, win recruits, win favor by terrorist acts, even, even though you're not asking the local population to put themselves at risk to support you. No, yes, absolutely you're playing to, to, to different audiences. Yes, sir. Um, you get, uh, it sounds to me from your uh, lecture at this point that you had uh, some serious differences with uh, current American policy regarding this stage of our war on terror or terrorist behavior. Do you have any particular recommendations for things that we should change? Well, you're, you're correct on the first point, but I know lots of people who have real problems with the current administration, including uh, retired generals and active colonels, okay? I think, you know, objecting to, to going into Iraq when we did it and going in at the strength that we did it and all the rest of it, there's a lot of people. I was at a conference at uh, Fort Leavenworth called Turning Victory into Success, okay? <laughs> and we were just loaded with with all kinds of types there who are all wondering what hit them and trying to figure out what went wrong, including the planner of Iraqi freedom, the planner of the ground wall, Kevin, uh, what's Ke Kevin Benson, um, who is now the, the commander over at SAMS. Um, uh, and we had um, Ambassador Peck, a real lover of American policy right now. Um, and we had Jay Garner, which was very interesting. Um, and, you know, no, no matter how you shuffle the cards, we simply didn't prepare to deal with the disorder and opposition that was going to come out of that war. And when people did try to do it, or they now say that they did, they were stopped in the administration. We just didn't take it very seriously. So I think we entered a war we didn't have to get into, and then we projected our desires, our discourse on what that war would be onto a reality that just had nothing to do with that. Now the question is how do you, how do you put the hornets back in a hive? And I hope it happens. I, you know, I felt real good when we had the elections and that kind of stuff. But you know, I'll just, I'm gonna, this is a non-answer you realize, folks. But it's, it's my chance to think out loud about something. If you read Ken Pollock's book on Arab armies, okay? And then you read his dissertation, which is a lot more strident. Uh, you know, <laughs> he's 1,500 pages of political science dissertation strident. I imagine his, his advisors were pretty strident too with 1,500 pages to read, but the point he continually makes is that for he, for, for, he, for, for reasons he feels are, are purely a product of Arab culture. That Arab armies don't do well in mobile warfare because they can't roll with the flow. The, the authority is, is, is too much at the top and at the very top so that they can't be flexible. Classic example, 73, we're on the Golan Heights, the Syrians are, are, are way overwhelming the Israeli forces on there. A battalion breaks through the line and they stop. Why? Well, they didn't have any orders of what to do once they got through the line. 
So they phone back. By the time they get the orders and what to do, the Israelis have responded. Okay. Now, if this inability to have flexible authority on the level of junior officers is really true, and I think it is, and now we're going to go in and train them to be constabulary forces, and we know how to train them because we know how we act as constabulary forces. I wonder. You know, I wonder if, we, if, what, if our answer, which is to create the, uh, uh, an Iraqi army, an Iraqi police force that will handle it on their own, in the way that we would handle it if we were there, we may be back on the wrong horse if Pollock's right. And there's a lot of evidence for Paul to be right. I, I could go on for a half hour on that subject, and not gonna. But I mean, I think one of the things we're trying to do may turn out not to work for reasons that are that that we should have known about because they've been well discussed. Yeah. Don't use that argument with the Jordanians, though. They do it pretty well. Okay. 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 I think the right sense it ain't easy. Yeah. Well, you know, when I wrote the first draft of my chapter eight, which is on the '73 war, and it's from sort of Egyptian point of view, I used Pollock's dissertation, which had a lot of this cultural material in it. And then I showed it to, to a colleague of mine who's an Egyptian story. He said, you can't say that. You're being Orientalist. So I could say it without doing all of that. And so I edited it out. And then, of course, Pollock's book came out. He edited all that stuff out, too, to, to save himself from that firestorm. And then, what is it? Just a couple of weeks ago, we got this report from uh, United Nations thing that was and, uh, and, and about Arab society. It was saying all the same things that I had just expunged. I and mean, it was Arabs who wrote it. You know, so, you know, you know, I mean, Pollock may have been Orientalist, but he may also not have been in that far from wrong. And if you look at the, at, at the conduct of Arab armies, as, as, as Pollock does, and frankly, for you political scientists, his dissertation is much more interesting than the, than the book because it's got the negative cases in the in dissertation, and they're really very interesting. Yeah? Well, first of all, you have to blanket amnesty and give the, the, the rebels jobs. Yes, ab jobs. absolutely. And then you have to spend a great deal of money uh, and make sure that the policemen and their families are much better yes. taken care of than anybody else in the entire population. At this conference that we had in September, one of the guys, you know, we got these generals, you know, we got these colonels, and we got these ambassadors, and they're all, and then one of the guys is a major in charge of the pay corps there. And you're thinking, oh boy, you know, what do we got this geek up there, right? And he says, I handle the most important thing in Iraq, the money. Because if we can give them jobs and we can get them money, then they'll do other things. And by the end of his talk, you were just convinced that that was the answer. That, in, you know, unless you, you create some alternative. For example, yeah. you can't demean your labor. That's yeah, 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 yeah. You can't work on the roads of nations. I mean, it has to be socially acceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, 
Right. Hire the Pakistanis to build a road building, yeah. Fire store. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. I was thinking also on the larger scale beyond the Iraq conflict, what sort of large strategic recommendations you make to deal with this issue of what has been generally described as Islamic fundamentalist, anti American character? My own personal feelings? Change some American policies, kill some terrorists, and see what happens. I, I'm sorry. I just, I, I, I just feel that, that, that we, we, have, we have allowed Israel to run its own show for too long. Sorry. I mean, I do think that there are things that we do and not just who we are. But that's, I don't want to go into that. Okay? I think that we have to make some long-range policy changes with the, with the full knowledge that in the short range they're not going to change the situation. In the long range they may. We have to kill the right people. We have to support some regimes, find some Arab models that we, we like. I happen to be a great friend of the Moroccan model right now, okay? Okay, for very personal reasons. Don't eat the chicken. Yeah, don't eat the chicken. Uh, and, you know, it's funny, but as an historian of monarchies and of reforming monarchies, I almost feel like I got a handle on reform that people who look at reform in the sense of the way you do it in the 20th century Western world don't have. Because a, a monarch has to reform in such a way that he preserves tradition while he alters reality. <laughs> you can't just go in and create a Western model. That's why I like the Moroccan model, although uh, they've got their problems with terrorists too and etc. Um, but I think it's, you know, Don't take on fights you don't need to take on. Go for the guys who are actually threatening you. Change policy and keep your eyes and your ears open. Because we're not going back to a world without terrorism. And again, you know, right now, the right-wing, extreme American terrorists are taking a holiday. Maybe because they're patriotic. I don't know. But they just discovered a house in Illinois that was loaded with bombs and assault rifles and other and mortars and shit. And, you know, they'll be back. And people we can't even predict right now will, be, will, will adopt the terrorist. Not the because it's like the KKK. Half the membership will be in the FBI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's easy. Sorry. Uh, yeah, well, it didn't keep us from Oklahoma. City. Yes, sir. Um, I, I'm an economist, so I don't know this guy Pollock's work. Yeah. I don't know. But I thought you were going to say, from the perspective of military history, the, the great uh, revolution or the, the great contribution to military history of Islamic uh, warfare was the Mamluk system. And then, in a way, if you look from in the early modern history, they held their own, the, the Mamluk armies, because of the degree of mobility that they had against European forces until after the Renaissance. So this description of maybe the calcification of Arab forces after the advent of the nation state in the 20th century is what makes them ineffective in fighting conventional European wars. They were horse-friendly, not tank-friendly. Okay. okay, but horses in the long sweep of military history are more important almost than tank. Now, um, what I was going to ask you is, yeah. you, you pointed out because you like Zenith, that we should yeah. be looking to the 2050, what kind of war should we be fighting? So maybe what we're seeing right now is the beginning of a reaction by the West 
to a very mobile and low-scale form of warfare that's uh, loose-knit, sometimes state-sponsored, sometimes not state-sponsored, insurgency against uh, Western interests. So where do you see us being in the West? What kind of military strategy do you see us adopting? Okay. I, I'd argue with you about the Mameluk business, and 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 and, and uh, Pollock's analysis is not Arabs back to the Hajira. It's you know the 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 the, the uh, 19th, 20th, and mainly 20th century history of Arab armies, and an awful lot of the culture he's describing is urban. Okay, you know, I, it, 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 so he doesn't go way back. Um, and, and I urge you to take a look at the dissertation. It's, it's, uh, I, th I think it's phenomenal. Now, to get out to the mobile bit, okay. My problem with what I understand of current changes in the American military, and I am not an expert. The people in this room, I'm sure, know better than I. But it does add up to a more yippy-skippy way to fight a fairly conventional enemy. We're going to integrate the battlefield better, and that means we're going to use lighter weapons, but they're going to be so much smarter that, you know, we're going to get the guy before in the rock, before he has a chance to shoot at us kind of stuff. Well, it's an upgrade of a conventional battlefield, uh, maybe a small-scale conventional battlefield, but a conventional battlefield. I was talking to a guy at Leavenworth can't give you his name for obvious reasons. And he said to me, the Army's corrupt. I said, what? You know, you work for the Army. He said, the Army's corrupt. Everybody knows what you need. You need more constabulary forces, more civic action forces, more intel. And what the Army wants is maneuver units. Because that's what the Army does. And they're going to put the money and the effort into the wrong kinds of things because that's their conception of what the army is. Zinni always uses the, the metaphor that it's World War II. We still want to fight World War II. And that, that that's still the psychology. We want that kind of army. Okay? We're going to keep upgrading that kind of army. Uh, why do we need artillery units in this kind of world, for example? You know what we're doing with artillery units? And, I, the ones I know are they're, they're carrying rifles and, not, and going on patrol. Now, in a conventional battlefield, artillery is a great thing, but should we be creating more constabulary-style units, which are armed, trained, and I mentally trained, for this kind of war, as opposed to the kinds of high-tech upgrades and changes that the, that the military likes to do? Why do we need a brand-new fighter? I mean, if the old fighters are falling apart, it's better to buy new ones than to fix the old ones, maybe. But just for its own sake, why do we need another generation of fighters? Maybe we need different kinds of transports. One of the things that was scary to me is somebody talked, well, we're going to have this armored vehicle. You see, it's going to, and it's air transportable because it can be lightly armored, which means, you know, you could take it out with an RPG, right? But, you know, it's going to have this gun, you know, and, and we can really, you know, defend it with the gun. Wait a minute. In, in a, in a counterinsurgency operation, you don't hose down the whole damn apartment building. You get the sniper in the third floor. <laughs> and so to me, and, and I may be naive on this. I'm, I'm very much a military historian. I'm not a, I'm not a policy wonk. 
But to me, what, what, what you need is, is a real revolution in what an army is supposed to do, not in the technology of the way they're going to do what they think they've been doing before. There is a caveat. That is, if we do end up in a bunch of interventions into countries, those are going to start as conventional operations. They're going to become counterinsurgencies later on. And you have to be able to do both. Uh, frankly, I think we need bigger forces. And in that larger force, we need more diversity. You know, I, I, I'm all for adding some divisions. Yeah? Why don't you think uh, an infantry battalion or a tank battalion can, can do both a satellite mission and also a uh, conventional mission, which, we, which I've personally done in two different theaters? I was talking to the 1st of the 10th Marines in January. I was talking to whatever the Marine top sergeant is. I, I get lost after gunnery sergeant, so I don't know. And he's talking to me, he says, I like your stuff on restraint and everything, but what do you do when you got 18-year-olds who want to do this? There is a psychology of maximum force, and there's a psychology of minimum force. Story I always tell. My nephew's Chicago cop, comes to a family party. He's in a cast. I said, what happened? He said, I got hit by the bad guys in a car. How did you get yourself in that situation? Bad guys are running away. Clearly, they're the bad guys. His patrol car is coming around. He gets out to block off the alley. And he's, as, as this car is, is speeding down the alley, and his partner doesn't come around the other side takes the pose, and here comes another car across the end of the alley. He can't shoot because he might hit the other people. Now, the bad guys just back up down the alley and end up hitting him. You're going to do that with, with, with uh, an infantry squad? Is, is that how they're going to think about it? I mean, I think there's, there's different armament, there's different training, but there's different psychology, too. That's why I say constabulary forces. Now, look. I've talked to Zinni about this, too. I mean, it's not like we have deep philosophical conversations. I maybe had two conversations in my life, and one of them was this one. And I said, you think a Marine can do anything. What about exactly this problem of this? He says, they can do it. Give me six months to retrain, and I can, I can take a, combat, you know, a regular combat unit and throw them in as, as, as constabulary. I said, are you always going to have six months? Now, that was him. That was my point of view. You may have insights that I don't have on this, but I am very skeptical of the notion that you can create the warfighter and turn him into the cop on the block simply by telling him that that's how you do it. Yeah, like the par like the Paras on Bloody Sunday. They did it. They did a real good job. Okay. Okay, okay. And what were you doing? You were training those, those units as constabulary units. And then they made good constabulary units. Fine. Yes, sir. Complete left turn from what we're talking about. Goody. Your diagram of, of the different types of terrorism, I'm not sure that while narco-terrorism is a form of criminal terrorism, I'm not sure it's as significantly different from the others as you're making it out to be. Well, I said that because, because the narco-terrorism that, that, that we know best, exemplified by Pablo Escobar, was pursuing a, a criminal goal through a political 
a change in policy. Because the, 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 the hard part of that terrorism wasn't about fighting over drug territories. It was about trying to change the Colombian policy towards extradition. Yeah, it, it was trying to make a political change for the purpose of shoring up personal power. And the way those narco-terrorists happen each yeah. war is with cash instead of religious converts yeah. or black people not going to the polls or whatever other form you want to keep well, score with. You know, I obviously agree with you to a large extent because I put it up on, on my terrorist map. I just say that, that you have to get over this issue. Now, wait a minute. He wasn't fighting some, for some great millenarian cause. He was fighting for profit. Okay? And one of the things that strike me about the dedicated terrorists is they, they're millenarian. They're, they're, they're not into compromise anymore. It, would the KKK be fighting for profit? If you suddenly all these black people can vote and hold jobs and do the same things you've always been doing, they're displacing you in the world. Well, you've got to cross over there, obviously. But, but to me, it's still about racial feelings. And part of the bit about competing with blacks for jobs is how can that guy be deserving because he's black. And that's as early as it started out because one of the things you, you should know about the early Ku Klux Klan, in some ways they did less things, but they bombed schools and they were infuriated by the notion that black children would be educated. And they were illiterate because that was reversing the, the race role. Thank you very much.